What is going on, everybody? This is episode 26 of the Future Projection Podcast, a podcast by Baseball America. I am Carlos Galazzo, as always, joined by Ben Badler. We are a week into the college baseball season. Ben, how is it going, man? I'm good. Like you just said, we're getting we're getting into draft season now. Yes. It's college baseball, high school baseball starting around in certain parts of the country uh, up here in the Northeast. It is definitely not <laughs> starting <laughs> yet, but uh, you guys still, still yes. snow on the ground uh, tomorrow. Tomorrow it was like almost 70 degrees yesterday, and then it's gonna snow tonight. So, but it's I mean it's cool seeing kids all around. Uh, you know. Texas and and California and and Florida and kind of the warmer warmer weather parts of the state really get started up for obviously for for high school but then like you said college baseball and we're seeing guys throwing 103 miles an hour and Jeez. it's it's yeah that it's it, it's exciting just to have it back right now yeah it's fantastic I, I headed down to Florida last week um, got some high school and some college looks I went down to Prep Baseball Reports preseason Florida Classic, which has just really been a great event for me to get my season started the past few years um, with a few COVID years in between where I didn't travel. Um, but that one was good. Got looks at maybe three first round prospects at that event between Elijah Green, uh, Jackson Ferris and Brandon Barriera. Uh, and then I headed up to Tallahassee and saw FSU's left-handers Parker Messick and Bryce Hubbard absolutely shove. Saw Chase DeLauder, who was uh, along with Elijah Green, the highest ranked prospect entering the season um, that I got live looks on this weekend. He was not so great. We can get into that later in the podcast, but it was just really nice to finally get the season started. Um, obviously, seeing baseball in person was awesome for me, but I was also just having a blast by looking on Twitter and seeing real video that that's not like old video, like live looks at everything happening all around the country, seeing all the college baseball feeds active with, with what's going on and just being overwhelmed with baseball was fantastic. It, it, it's felt like a long time since that ha that has happened. And, and just to be able to have that every weekend now and really throughout the week with all the midweek games, all these college teams are playing and, and finally seeing a lot of these players that we've been anticipating and talking with scouts about and looking at video on and, and, and looking at their production and, just kind of wondering what's going to happen and finally seeing that actually on the field has been fantastic. And, and hopefully you guys got to watch a lot of that as well, but it just feels really good every yeah, year. I feel like November and, you know, like, you know, in October too, after Jupiter is, is done at the beginning of that month. So, you know, October, November, December, January, it's just so much gathering information and, and calling around to different scouts and, and other people in the industry and trying to, organize all of our information and, and take some time to collect our thoughts and organize these players on our board and, and write reports on these guys. And now is like that first time where we're actually just getting flooded with new information, new video, um, you know, new live games, new data, new, new everything to try to fold in. So it's, it's exciting. Like you said, to have all of it starting to, to happen now to, to kind of fold that into our, into our updates yeah you you mentioned the actual timeline it, it, it doesn't sound like a very long period of not having baseball but every year it feels like it it takes forever i don't know if that's just because we're nerds about baseball and we love it but man it feels like more than just three months that, that we haven't seen live baseball 
I think it's been a long few months just for <laughs> baseball fans in in general. Mm-hmm. I think that probably is a contributing yeah. factor to it. Um, were you so you were at uh, Barriera? Mm-hmm. His his start. So were they going up against each other yeah. in that? So American Heritage played IMG Academy. Uh, Barriera got the start for American Heritage and. Jackson Ferris got the start for IMG. So they were actually pitching against each other. And just given the way this pitching class is shaping up, I don't envision seeing a better pitching matchup just in terms of ranked players. Like that's probably the best that I'm going to see. Probably um, including college too. Oh, a hundred percent, including college. Yeah. <laughs> like Carlos was li- a college pitching class. <laughs> it's this terrible. It's so terrible, man. We had two, I think I tweeted this. We had two, college pitchers ranked in the first round that threw opening weekend landon sims and hunter barco both of whom are very good and we have notes on both of those players in in one of two stock watches that i have posted on the site this week so yeah all of the hopes in the college class at this point are on sims and barco pretty heavily um the high school pitching is just more fun there's more guys there's more guys in the first round range um there's just more of them. They're they're better than the college arms that we have that are healthy right now. So, how many scouts were at Barriera versus a ton. Ferris? Because it's like not, not only have... is it a great matchup, but like what else are you going to do? Like well, it's also not like you, you have Elijah Green see... and you have right. Brady Neal and you have JPR. Like the IMG lineup is loaded, and there are some underclass guys as well in there. Stone oh, Russell, yeah. um, Nathan Fink. Like it's just a very loaded lineup and. The pitching matchup in general would have drawn a huge crowd. I would imagine one of those pitchers throwing in Florida right before the college season gets started would have drawn a crowd. So when you combine it all, in addition to all the other teams, um, I mean, Javier Santos, uh, Tejada, he threw, Jason Torres' team played. Just a loaded, loaded field of prospects. A ton of, like, bang for your buck, just in terms of the hours that you're out at the field and seeing all these guys. Um it was fantastic. I mean, I don't know off the top of my head how many. There were dozens. I would guess more than 50 scouts were there. I, I'm, I'm pretty bad at just kind of ballparking numbers. I should have, like, made a point to actually count up everyone there. Um, I'll have to ask Nathan. I'm sure Nathan Rohde, uh has, like, an actual number of people who are out at that event. But every year it feels like one of the bigger – one of the bigger events in the country just because of the location and the timing that it always is. It's always like right before the first weekend of college baseball. So you can, you can get that look in and then you can kind of jump to whatever the best weekend matchup in Florida is on the college side. Um, This year for me, it was definitely seeing the louder against those two arms, but I mean, Florida's down there. Miami is down there. Um, Stetson a few years ago, Logan Gilbert, I tied that one into this run. So there's always a lot of really good stuff. You can kind of tie into it. Um, and get some really good looks. So as if they keep doing it, I imagine I'll keep going to it. Yeah. I mean, it, it definitely seems like one of the big preseason tournaments out there, or just one of the bigger high school events in general. Cause like you said, mm-hmm. you don't, when you have the Boris classic, you have the NHSI, but a lot of times you're just going around and trying to see typically what one player mm-hmm. <laughs> at a time at a high school game, which is why the summer is so good. Right. Cause you can yeah. see so many players, in one spot at the same time and, and using wood bats too, typically. So um, yeah, it's a, it's a good opportunity to get out and just see a whole bunch of really good players 
in one spot at one time and not, you know, not even just for 2022, but some, some of these underclass guys too. Yeah, absolutely. And this year, typically it's like Valentine's every year, just because of when the college season starts, it's always Valentine's day. So Maddie's always a little upset because I'm heading out of town, like on Valentine's day, this year it worked out where Valentine's was the day before this trip for me. So, um, you know, the best of both worlds, we're off to a really good start in the 2022 season. Well, you'd rather go see Elijah green and, uh, head down there and, and see him. How did he, how did he look? He looked really good. I saw, to the, me. I saw the home run. He looked good on that swing. Yeah. I, I think Elijah for me, he kind of was the player that I expected him to be. And that I think he is and has become like there, there was still a little swing and miss. There are a few pitches where he looked a little caught off balance on breaking stuff. Um, most of the swing and miss was in the zone. There are a few ugly checks, but, uh, the home run came against a breaking ball. He took 94 miles per hour from Barriera in his first inning and lined it out to shallow right field the other way. Um, I don't think he got jammed. He kind of just went inside out with that pitch. Um, so he handled velocity, took a breaking ball that just kind of hung up over the plate and hit a no doubt home run to left field. I think it was like 363 feet or something like that. One away off the bat with metal. Um, BP looked good to me. Uh, he threw really well in workouts. It looked like one of the better arms in the class that that scouting directors voted it as um, he rolled over on one pitch and turned in a plus plus runtime uh, down the first base line. So for me, I thought he really kind of flashed all the tools that people like about him, showed the power. Um, and at the same time, still have some of those questions about swing and miss. What is the ultimate uh, like hitting ability feel? Is he going to be a guy who gets to, an above average hit tool? Is it going to be more average with just a ton of power and speed? The development of that, I think will be interesting. And it'll be interesting for me to kind of touch base with, with scouts to see how that's progressed. If he's made an adjustment there. Um, but really he's been one of the more, I don't want the, the swing and miss concerns to get too overblown because he has always really hit for power in game for me. I, I can't remember a hitter who I've seen personally, in my live looks hit for as much home run power as Elijah green. It seems like every time that I've watched him, he's left the yard. Um, I'm just kind of thinking back to two other players who maybe would compare like Reese Hines. I never really saw it in game. Like his power was pretty loud. He, he took one of the better BPs that I'd ever seen. Nolan Gorman is one of the other big kind of slugging high school players. I didn't see as much home run production again, just in my personal looks. So, so most of my looks with Elijah have been pretty good. Um, Marco Luciano was like that for me mm -hmm. when he was in the Dominican and he was like 15, 16, yeah. swinging a wood bat pull side in like the big stadium in the, like it was either, I think Estadio Quisquet or maybe it was in San Pedro actually mm -hmm. in the, in the winter ball stadium there. Some hit an oppo home run at another field. I was like, Oh my God, this guy is <laughs> an absolute absolute beast loved his swing loved the power Loved mm. the i mean it was it, he had feel for hitting obviously like the power showed up in game but it was just like a really special combination of swing and power and maybe he could play shortstop figured he'd move over probably to third but it'll give him a chance to stay at short but yeah he was another guy who just hit hit for power in games and when you see a guy do that with a a good approach it's it's pretty exciting yeah it really is and he's just probably the most unique just 
physical player that I've seen. I'm really curious to see what his defensive um, kind of like where he plays moving forward. Does how long does he stick in center field? Like, is he a legitimate center fielder at the major league level? I mean, right now I feel like he could be, I didn't see a ton of defensive chances in this look. And he certainly has the, the arm strength and the kind of physical frame and power that you would just maybe just in your mind say, Oh, that's a right fielder, but man, he is so fast and he's going to have to get pushed off the position by someone who's just better than him. So I'm really curious to see how long he is like a legitimate center field player at the next level, but yeah, he was pretty good. Um, trying to think who the next best look for me in this was. I mean, honestly, the, the Florida state pitchers were lights out Parker Messick and Bryce Hubbard were both dominant. Um, Messick struck out 11 batters, um, over 5.2, Bryce Hubbard set a career record with 13 strikeouts in five innings. Hubbard really has like a an outlier fastball. The, the raw spin rates of the pitch are, are apparently pretty normal. They're not crazy. But he has insane vertical break with really good extension. And it just plays like an invisible. Like he was mostly 90-91, but just overwhelming this James Madison lineup with fastballs, getting whiffs up in the zone, up and out of the zone. Like it was dominant. I think he used like six to eight secondary pitches the entire time. So I don't have a great feel for what his secondaries are. I, I looked at some video from last summer. It looks like he has a, a couple pretty good breaking balls, but man, he dominated with that fastball. And Parker Messick, another one, like he doesn't throw super hard. He touched a four early on, was mostly 91, 93, um, but has some deception in his delivery. The fastball plays up, whether that's just because he hides it well or because he can mix and match a, a breaking ball and a really good changeup and just has pretty good overall command. Both those two are really good. And, and I'm curious to see how their stuff plays once they get into conference play and just what the velocity looks like. Cause I know they're both undersized. Parker certainly is kind of physically maxed. Bryce Hubbard is a little bit more lean, but still a smaller guy. Don't know how much velocity they're going to get to in the long term, but if they can take it up a, a few miles per hour, just given the state of this college pitching class, I think they could do really well for themselves. So they were pretty electric. Yeah. What about uh, Chase DeLouder though? What? Yeah. We don't have what, to talk what? about Chase this week. <laughs> uh, I don't know, man. He, uh, I thought he was, sounded like he was a top 10, top five type uh, pick. Didn't have I a top mean, 10 type of debut. I don't know if we, we've, if I'd mentioned this on the podcast previously, but he is a guy who I had talked with a few scouting directors who thought, yeah, like he's a potential one, one candidate, just given his tool set track record, Kate performance. And then, because yeah, of I mean, who there's he no is or, nice... or because of or because of the Orioles picking. They were just talking about like part of the... I was asking them about like how they'd line up the class. So I think it was more like they viewed the talent there rather than like, mm. oh, the Orioles picking there. Maybe he's a one one. Like to me, it seemed like they were talking about just in general. Yeah. Like one one talent um, did not look like that opening weekend. He I, he had a multi-hit game on Sunday. I just saw the first two games in the series in person. Um, and, and certainly the first two games, he was going up against the better arms that FSU had um, in Messick and Hubbard. They're tough left-on-left -left matchups. But at the same time, for a guy with DeLauder's pedigree, with his track record of hitting, his contact ability, 
it was a bad look. Those guys struck him out every single time, I believe. I think he had five plate appearances against those two. It was over five with five Ks. Um, overall on the weekend, he went three for 14 with eight strikeouts, a lot of swing and miss. I mean, scouts were not impressed with his batting practice on Friday. He hit just one home run in his in all of his rounds on Friday before the game. And if you know Florida State's field, it is a heaven for left-handed hitters. It's a very shallow fence in right field. Mm. Um Alex Terrell is going to feast there this season, the transfer from Miami who homered this weekend um, to the pull side. Uh, we saw some right-handed hitters go the other way over the fence. So at least in batting practice, you figured with, with metal, the louder would put on a little bit of a show, but I don't know if his timing is, is just still not there yet. He was fouling a lot of balls up into the, the net um, NBP. To his credit, Saturday's batting practice was a little bit better. He hit six home runs in BP Saturday, all to the pull side. Um, so I just am kind of struggling to fit my look in person with the ladder into all of the information that we had kind of entering the year. Uh, the hitter that I know he was over the summer, the hitter he's been at James Madison. And I think it's tough for him because this, this season or this season opener I think was probably really important for him. James Madison is not playing a bunch of great competition um, throughout the season. I would imagine this matchup is probably the, the best that they're going to have this year. And just having that be the performance is, is got to create a lot more questions for people in the industry. Um, so it's tough. Yeah, I mean, it's, I, I know they play much. Tennessee later on, but like you said, I think they have two yeah. midweek matchups with Tennessee. So even then, yeah. Yeah. Fairly Dickinson, Quinnipiac, Moorhead State, yeah. Winthrop, like yeah, Delaware. There's gonna, there's, it's unfortunate. There's probably will be more emphasis placed on what he does in in this series, and and the timing yeah. of it is, is and the fact that unfortunate. it's the first weekend is going to cement that more in people's minds than if it was three weeks into the season or halfway through the season, like for whatever reason, for whatever bias that is, like people will just remember that more uh, because it happened at the very beginning. Um, and I'm sure people just had that one circled because again, tough, tough matchups, good pitchers left on left. Are scouts now going to question what he can do against good pitching? Are they going to question his production versus left-handers? Has the swing changed from the summer? I mean, we'd, we'd heard from some people who thought the swing looked a bit stiffer than it did last summer. So if that's a real problem, does he resolve that in the next few weeks? Um, just a lot more questions that I have now with the louder that, um, I mean, maybe they were always there and just not at the forefront of my mind personally, but um, interested to see how the industry kind of views him moving forward now um, and how big a knock will really two games uh, be for him. Because, I mean, the foundation of what he's done is pretty solid the Cape matters for a reason. And he was really good in the Cape. So uh, it's tough for yeah, these I think smaller he, school guys. Yeah. I think if he goes off and, and hits like he did, like you said, in the Cape last summer, I think that'll wash out a lot of this, but I mean, again, we saw, you know, like Judd Fabian or Adrian Del Castillo, two guys, mm -hmm. I mean, you know, different types of players, obviously, but just, just two examples of guys who came into their draft year, very highly, regarded and then mm, all of a sudden <laughs> some more holes get get exposed in in different parts of 
their games and and some of the air comes out of their stock and um so that's i mean it seems like that's a possibility potentially mm-hmm. uh again i'm not trying to overreact to a few games just giving examples of of other guys mm-hmm. who did come into their draft year really highly regarded and sort of came down more as as the season went on did, did you get a sense too because i mean you were there what because you were at img or, or excuse me you're it was the, at um it was in palm beach right right so you were field but but so you were you know kind of in town to go to that pbr tournament and then head up to florida state i imagine there were probably a lot of other uh scouts and I, i'd imagine probably higher level decision makers in town too making that same trip yeah there were there were a lot there were there are some higher level decision makers at both events um, that I was aware of. Um, there, there always are at the PBR preseason classic and, and given to louder's presence at FSU, there were a number of, of pretty heavy hitters at that event as well. Again, I don't know how many scouts there were um, probably around 30 or more at FSU, just that I noticed watching VP and, and at the game, it was, it was a good crowd at both events. Um, and kind of to your point of, guys falling who, who came in with pretty good foundations. I think one of the, one of the areas that I'm trying to make sure I don't, um, I think in the past it has been pretty easy to avoid dropping players as much as we should, or as much as I should on the draft board, because I think you always hear, Oh, small sample sizes. You don't want to overreact to player movement. But I think what we've learned over the past few years is that this spring really matters a lot for scouting departments and for how teams view players. Um, like you said, with Adrian Del Castillo, he had a, a phenomenal track record coming into the spring and then didn't perform. And he fell down boards because of that. I think in hindsight, we would have dropped him down our draft board a little bit more. I think it, it'll be a little, just in the back of my mind throughout the year of kind of telling myself, yeah, the players came in with, with this foundation and this is where everyone was telling us that they are for months prior to the season, but the actual performance this spring is more meaningful than anything else. So you, it, it almost seems like you can be a little bit more reactive in the draft rankings during the spring than maybe you would with, with like a minor league ranking uh, or with how you view major league players over the course of a season, these four or five months really, change how scouts view players um and it seems like in the past i think we've erred toward being too conservative where maybe we can be a little um i don't know move the needle a little bit more on where these players are are moving around i mean we're always asking scouts where to rank the players so it's not like it's based on my personal look but i think that's that's kind of a bias that i'm trying to be aware of yeah i mean you you always have your priors and you want to be anchored to them to a Mm -hmm certain extent but as you get new information again we're not you know going overboard on a few games but it it was a rough look (laughs) it's just something to monitor going forward where yeah if if struggles continue you i don't think you really have a a choice but to but to adjust to that new information and and fold it into your evaluations that way Mm -hmm. um you know, at the same time, you know, we, we do have players who, you know, will will even struggle for a full year during, during their draft year. And then when they, um, you know, sometimes get into pro ball and, and you see, oh, actually it, it was just kind of a, you know, a rough spring 
mm-hmm. for them, and they um, bounced back. I think if I remember, like Jackie Bradley Jr., uh, if I remember right, was you know one of those guys with a pretty muted <laughs> uh, year the the year he got drafted, but obviously it it worked out for him. So it's still a uh, you know trying to balance that history that you have on a player while incorporating the the newest information that the player is is giving you with what he's doing on the field yeah balancing that is always a challenge um and it's hard to kind of mentally in my head i'm always thinking oh am i overreacting or am i not reacting enough i think we also dealt with this in in the covid year when we just didn't have as much information as we were used to having um, so, so how much does four weeks matter? Uh, obviously, unless fingers crossed, I guess anything can happen at this point, but hopefully we get a full season to see all these guys and, and see how everything falls. Um, but it's tough for DeLauder too, because I mean, last year would have been better for him. This hitting class is pretty good on the college side. There are a lot of really good hitters at the very top that he's going to be competing with. Um, it's, it's not a great draft class if you're a, a hitter that maybe has some question marks and, a uh, smaller conference um, to maybe not move the needle as much as you'd be able to, if you were an sec hitter. Um, but are there any other players you want to touch through? There's a, a lot more that I saw or that I watched after the fact, I guess for you, Ben, how, what was opening weekend like for you? Did you watch a lot of college baseball or are you focused on other projects? Yeah, I was, you know, trying to keep tabs on it in the background while we're updating our, especially our underclass prospects, rankings right now 2023 and 2024 and working on some international projects so i wasn't bearing on it down on it quite as closely obviously as you are for the 2022 draft but i I mean i did see tennessee pitcher throwing 103 miles an hour that yeah ben uh, joyce ben joyce that that caught my eye (laughs) (laughs) it was it was hard to miss that one yeah, it's it's interesting how velocity just seems to go viral. That one, Ben Joyce's velocity, and I think Tommy White's home run binge mm. are probably the two biggest or or most loud and viral college storylines. Um, and that's always really fun, just because I think it it just brings college baseball to to more people's eyes. Um, yeah, the Ben Joyce one is insane. I think. I think I'd mentioned this when I saw the velocity, but I believe Luke Little is the last pitcher in the amateur space that I'm aware of that has thrown that hard or harder. And Joyce's is more impressive because I think if I remember correctly, Little hit like 104 in a bullpen. And this was like 100 multiple times in a row in game for Ben Joyce and up to 103 it's pretty impressive just the the raw velocity and that entire Tennessee pitching staff just has a ton of hard throwers. Chase Burns is up into the upper nineties. Um, Dolander with them is into the upper nineties. Tidwell when he's healthy can get into the upper nineties. Um, that's Chase Dolander. Um, yeah, he touched 99. I think they just have a ton of heat in that pitching staff. I would love to know what their, like average staff fastball velocity is in like a month. And it, it seems like they're the easy favorite to be the hardest throwing staff in the country, I would guess. Yeah. I mean, we've had Hunter Green throw in, I think 104, maybe 105. I mean, in high school? Not, no, this uh, this past year with the oh, Reds. Gotcha. I thought, so, yeah, he got up to like 102 in high school, right? 
I believe. I him, yeah, it was Petty, over. Riley Pint, maybe Luke Little certainly got into that range. But I, I just mean like in in minor league baseball or yeah. just all of professional baseball right now. There's well, I saw I don't know some, how many guys actually throw over 102. Some tweet from the Codify Twitter account, which is a really good follow. He said that the Dolanders like 103.9 or 103 point something was harder than any pitch in Major League Baseball in 2021, which I was a little surprised by. I figured like Chapman would have hit that or, or someone would have gotten into that range, but that's insane if that's accurate. And I have no reason to, to think that it's not accurate, but I mean, that velocity is just eye popping. Yeah, I'd have to like go through the whole handbook just to see how many pitchers. I mean, we obviously have a lot of guys who throw. I mean, how many pitchers in history do you think have gotten to 103 or better? Like, it's a pretty short list, yeah, right? Yeah, like, like Jordan confirmed Hicks. 103. Has I don't know if De, has Decrom hit that? Probably. Let me pull it <laughs> up and see. I think like I know like I know Abner Uribe with the Brewers was maybe was 101 or 102. I mean, you, you have guys who throw plenty of guys who throw a hundred miles an hour, uh, which is crazy enough in itself, but just <laughs> Imagine for him saying to be, that like 20 years ago. Yeah. Just for him to be coming out February, <laughs> be throwing one Oh three. And I think their coach was like, yeah, but you know, it's like he, he throws harder than that guys. Like, <laughs> right. I think he said he threw one Oh four previously. So. Um, obviously it's not everything like you mm-hmm. alluded to with, uh, with Luke little, but it's, exactly. it's still exciting to like, don't go, don't go overboard, enjoy it. But it doesn't mean that here's the next ACE we're seeing in baseball. I mean, for me, Tommy White's performance is more impressive just because it's like, I mean, throwing, I don't know. I don't want to, I don't want to talk out of both sides of my mouth, but I mean, Tommy White's home run, he had five home runs. Let me pull up his stats really quickly. Okay, so through the first weekend series against Evansville, two midweek games, Tommy White is hitting 619 with five home runs, 15 RBIs. He is 13 for 21 with four walks and how many strikeouts? Two strikeouts. And he's also one for one in stolen bases, which I would not have guessed that for Tommy White. So I need to look up the video of the stolen base because he's not a fast person. Um, but all of his home runs were basically sprayed from left center to right center. It's basically straightaway power. And I mean, people are throwing out Seth beer comps already. And I've heard that from some people in the industry as well, like Billy Butler, Seth beer comps. Um, I mean, it was fun to watch. It was a lot of fun to watch, but it's interesting because I mean, this is basically the player that Tommy white was in high school. And it's just, it's just interesting how the industry is skeptical of this exact profile in high school. And then in college, if he's basically the same player, just feel a lot better about it. Um, we had him ranked as a top 200 player coming out of high school. Um, he was a third baseman at the time. He's now been playing first base for NC State. Um, but it's, it's a very like hit and power centric profile. Obviously, he's not going to provide a ton of value defensively, but if he's hitting like this, I mean, there's some college first basemen that have gone pretty well in the draft. Um, he could certainly be on that track record or that trajectory. Yeah, that's one where, like you said, his his games are what Evansville, and then a couple midweek games. Yeah, Evansville, what? then High Point and Longwood. Yeah, that's one where I 
you know, it's, it is exciting. You know, the guy hits three home runs in his, you know, a, fr- a freshman hits three home runs in his, in his first college game and five home runs in his first three games. Obviously that's amazing to see, but it is just as far as projecting him long-term, that is one where I definitely want to see where it's at once we're a little bit further through the, a little bit further through the regular season and, and get through some you know better pitching staffs with him yeah absolutely I mean that was that was one of the questions with him out of high school is like it, it was kind of an easy comparison to put him near blaze Jordan but I think the industry thought blaze had better pure feel to hit and better pure bat speed um than Tommy so certainly seeing him against better pitching will be important um he hit the ball I think he hit like 14 balls harder than 95 miles per hour opening weekend which is just crazy um and a lot of fun or maybe it's the first week of the season um so he's gonna be a fun one to watch i mean his swing is just a lot of fun he, he takes massive aggressive hacks and he always has and and i just love it but three home runs in your first game um at the college level got to be a pretty cool experience and then homering in every game during the weekend i mean i i can't imagine that he's not just a star on campus at north carolina state right now I think he already, he's like one of, I feel like he's already become like one of the bigger names in college baseball right away. He'll even just for, I don't know if like for casual fans or, or anybody mm-hmm. who's sort of hopping more into the college game. Now that there is a, a lockout that people just don't want to mm-hmm. think about <laughs> right now. I think he's, I think he's already become pretty uh, famous in, in that sense. Yeah, I guess if you're going to become a, a star in college baseball, hitting three home runs in your first game and just being very identifiable on the field is a pretty good way to do it. I mean, who who are the biggest stars in college baseball over the last few years? It's like Kumar Rocker is the obvious yeah, one to me. Him and Leiter. Him, I don't even know if Leiter reached links because he had like one year and four weeks. Kumar at yeah, least had like but three. he was. I I think like he was getting blown up with the comp. Just his stuff, his draft prospect status the fact that he's a son of al Leiter, i think he was i mean he might have even i don't know would he be more famous now probably not to compare to kumar rocker because because like you said it was yeah I mean, kumar, kumar has, has the more, college world history. series the yeah. the like duke performance he's like much bigger and like a, a more intense presence on the mound i think the I mean, he also was the highest ranked um, high school player that that's ever gone to campus since we've done recruiting rankings. I don't know. I don't know how much that matters for like general college baseball stardom. People aren't probably too into the weeds about that. It's more about your performance in college. But I, I, I feel like the the World Series has to mean something like the, the whole time. I thought that Kamar was the more famous prospect on the team during their draft years. You, you felt like that flipped at some point. I feel like people were just streaming Jack Leiter starts and just excited to see <laughs> just excited to see highlights get posted of of him I mean I don't know it was pretty I mean I, I think they were definitely the most famous college baseball players in in the country like I don't even know who I'm trying like I don't know Judd Fabian maybe because of how how prominent he was coming into the year and I think Landon and, Sims- and then, and then his home runs against Jack Leiter probably yeah. helps with, with that too. I think it is probably like Landon Sims feels like one that has a lot of recognition. I think a lot of this comes from 
like pitching ninja tweeting out a lot of clips of these guys just shoving mm-hmm. really helps just get more awareness on these players. And I know Sims was like a, a personal favorite of Rob's last year. Now that he's starting, I feel like he could step into that role um, depending on how good the team does. I mean, he was, he was pretty electric. His first start, his first college start ever. We can talk about him, but he struck out 13 and didn't walk any on 81 pitches. That efficiency is just insane. Um, and he was maybe my most anticipated college pitcher this year, just because last year I got burned on, on Jaden Hill moving from the bullpen role to a starting role. He didn't have the success that you'd like to see, then got injured. Sims has pretty insane pure stuff. The fastball that has a electric analytical profile on top of really good velocity. One of the better breaking balls. I mean, I've always thought his control is pretty good. And he didn't walk anyone his debut. Again, we're still early in the season. Um, but it was against a pretty good Long Beach State team. So a good start for him. Yeah. Were there were there any big surprise? I mean, obviously we talked about DeLatter in the kind of unfortunate surprises category. But I don't know, were there any surprises for you or, or guys who really popped up who, you know, maybe were not the most high-profile names coming into the year? but jumped up and kind of maybe boosted their, their draft stock or, mm-hmm. or their status this, this past weekend. Well, I'll do one of the guys that I saw in person who I was just really impressed with. And that's um, Brett Roberts at Florida state. Um, he, he was playing third base for them and he had one of the more impressive hits that I saw over the weekend. He took 93 miles per hour on the outer half and, and drove it uh, over the right field fence the other way uh, went the other way multiple times with, pretty good ease and comfort. I thought at the plate, um, I like his actions defensively. Um, he's playing third base for Florida state now, but I think he might profile better as like a middle infield or a second baseman. Um, just cause I've heard some questions about his arm strength and there was one play where he kind of ran in on a slow roller and threw the ball away at first base, or, or at least he threw it high at first base. Alex Terrell made a nice play. Um, but I really liked just his actions, um, defensively. And I liked the bat speed and just, his feel to hit with a little bit of surprising pop. Like he's not the biggest guy. We have video on the, on the website right now, Brett Roberts, you can see his swing and in his physique and how he's built and everything, but there's more pop than I expected. Good bat speed. Um, and I know he's a guy who scouts thought had pretty good feel for hitting more of a contact bat. So the power that he showed was a bit of a surprise to me. And maybe it's just um, the short porch and right field at Florida state. And maybe it's, we haven't gotten into great competition, but I think he's, pretty interesting from like a, a national perspective on guys that I, I wasn't seeing in person. Um, Sterling Thompson's power that he showed was impressive. I think it's another one where scouts really liked Thompson's pure hitting ability. Um, but they wondered about the profile because there are some questions about him sticking in the infield. If he's in the outfield, he's probably a corner guy and he hasn't had a ton of production for power. Um, he went two for four on Friday with a pair of home runs. Both of those were to dead center field. That was impressive to me. I think when he gets his hands extended um, and away from the plate, he really can do some damage. So that's one that I would keep an eye on as a potential bat that could be moving up boards. He's at Florida. Yeah, Florida. So yeah. he's in the outfield with Judd Fabian. They've got two really good bats there that you can watch every weekend. Left-handed hitter. Um, again, like coming into the year, had a lot of scouts who really raved about like the pure hitting ability. Um, he's got a really good frame. I think he can add some more weight, add some more raw power in the future. And if 
I mean, we see, I think Matt Eddy actually researched this a lot, but you see college players take steps forward in power production from, I think from sophomore to junior year and from freshman year to sophomore year, pretty, pretty big years for power production jumps. I don't remember what was the biggest one. I actually think it might be from freshman to sophomore year, but either way, if the power is coming with him, he could be really interesting. Uh, another player who performed and, and maybe isn't a, as far down the board as Thompson now, but Kate Doty, he was the SEC player of the week. And I watched, I think all of his ABs, he just has a really good approach at the plate. I feel like he sees the ball really well out of the hand. It's a simple swing, contact oriented, but he had a pair of home runs. I think when pitchers make a mistake over the middle of the plate, he's got enough strength to do damage um, to the pull side. And at least with metal right now, probably at the next level, you're looking at more of like a gap to gap line drive doubles type bat, but, mm -hmm. and it really seems like he just has a great understanding of what he's doing of, of the pitches where he needs to like, he, he got a lot of outside pitches and just kind of went with those pitches very easily to the opposite field. I think he chased like one pitch out of the zone is a really good spotted slider. Um, that was just below the corner of the zone. I'm not sure where he profiles best defensively. And on that team, I'm sure he's going to be moving around a little bit. He played third and second base. Jacob Berry played right field and third base some. So he probably profiles best at second or third. Um, but I think he's got a chance to play a number of different positions. And if he keeps hitting, like he's got a chance to sneak into the first, I would imagine. Most people view him as a, a pretty solid second round player. But I mean, that lineup, if you, if you ever just don't know what to watch, just default to LSU because they have so many bats in that lineup that every day you've got a chance to see a lot of really fun players. Dylan Cruz, Jacob Berry, Trey Morgan, Kate Doty, like they're really good. They scored like 900 runs on the first yeah, let me series. Pull it, up. it was it was ridiculous. Like you said, it's it's just such a such a loaded lineup, man. Yeah, they scored 51 runs this weekend against Maine. And I imagine they'll be scoring a lot of runs every weekend, even against better competition. Um, because they just have some of the best bats in the country, all loaded up in the top five spots of that order. So yeah, Kate Doty might. I mean, he, he seems like a classic Ben Badler type, to be honest. Not Is the he? biggest guy, okay. smaller guy, really good feel for hitting, like chance to play middle, middle, uh, middle of the field position defensively. Yeah, I just feel like you would love his approach, his pure bat-to-ball skills. Again, I'm, I'm curious what the like actual power is down the line. I don't know how, how physically projectable the frame is or how much power he can get to, but I don't know that he necessarily needs to be a huge power guy to be a really good player. So he's one that I'll point to as well. Yeah, D Dylan Cruz didn't struggle his, uh, <laughs> his past week either. No, it, it does not seem like he did, and he really hasn't struggled at all since he's been at school, and I'm curious – I, I just want to see him in person again because I feel like I'm going to be even when you watch him on video and, and on streaming or on TV, he just looks massive now. Just seems like he's really filled out his frame in an, an ideal way, and he's just a monster hitter. Every time, like the LSU baseball analytics account does a really good job just putting out cool pieces of data, and it seems like yeah, every time yeah, they put that. out their every time they put out their like top exit velo leaders, it's like Dylan Cruz is at the top of the list. So I guess this year in my head, I'll be checking to see if Cruz or Barry is topping it. And so far, I think Cruz is. Yeah, he seems like a pretty complete hitter for a college sophomore. Just the 
combination of swing approach and and power with him is 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 pretty electric well i'm trying to think of like just like imagine if riley green had a bad summer and then got to college that's what i feel like it's like because Mm. coming into their draft class dylan cruz was he was viewed as like a top three bat in the class and he had a bad summer um swung and missed a little more than people are expecting there are questions about like the body during the spring and I think maybe it's just as simple as he had a really high price tag and slipped a little bit beyond the range that, that he would have signed for. And, and from then it was, it was not going to happen, but I feel like he took him, the, he took himself out of the draft, right? Yeah. Right before the draft. I think, I don't know if he was like officially out or told teams not to draft him. I think he actually might've been officially out of the, like ineligible to be selected. <clears throat> Cause I remember we had to take him off our board because of that. Um, we had him ranked around like 50, um, might have been a little bit higher, but he certainly started as like one of the better players in the class and just trended in the wrong direction um, and has kind of been the player that scouts were maybe expecting to see his senior spring um, and his the summer prior to his senior season at LSU and, and even better. Like uh, just the reports that I'm getting on the supplemental tools, like his running defense and, and arm, a lot better than high school. So, yeah, it seems like he's really done a great job. I don't know if it's just him or uh, the coaching staff there at LSU has really just helped unlock him, but he's been pretty fantastic. So far this season, he is six for 14, uh, two triples, a double, four walks, four strikeouts. So, yeah, pretty good. One of my personal favorites in that class, and I think I already tried to claim him for next year on the staff. So As your guy? Yeah, as my guy. Although it, it always is tricky though, because you, it's tough to have a guy that's just the top dude in the class. It feels like cheating, but I did yeah, always that, like his swing a little in high suspect. school. I did always like his swing in high school and when that's scouts true. thought he was swinging yeah, and missing yeah. a lot. So at least it's kind of like a Kevin Parada vibe for me, for him. Yeah, no, that's fair. You've been on him for, for a long time. Yeah. So I'm trying to think if there are any other obvious guys to get into from, I mean, there, there are a ton. We, we could probably spend hours here just breaking down everyone, but just in terms of the players, I actually got to spend a little bit more time with. Um, I mean, Jackson Baumeister has a pretty electric fastball at Florida state. He'll be an interesting one next year. It's like Jeff was saying that Jackson Baumeister's fastball is like Jack lighter analytical profile but from a six foot three frame which is insane Mm. like the the vertical approach angle the the vertical break uh the spin i mean he was getting over a bunch of barrels when i saw him and just a, a quick relief outing it looked like an easy plus fastball and apparently his extension is elite i was talking to florida state's pitching coaches about hubbard and and messick and he was like, yeah, this guy basically releases the ball from the infield grass. So his is a pitch that I would certainly watch out for. And I think as he steps into a bigger role on this Florida State pitching staff, he's going to be a guy that a lot of people like uh, over the next few years. So just keep an eye on him. Did you see him? Great. Did you see him live? Or Yeah, I saw him live. He came out of the bullpen, I think, on Friday night. I don't remember off the top of my head. Let me pull up my notes. He, I don't know. Sorry. Sorry to everyone. It doesn't really matter. He, um, he just had a really good fastball. And I think it's like, it's all of the, the baseball nerds, all of them are going to probably love this fastball or already do. 
I would imagine. It just like checks all the boxes. It's uh yeah, how much I mean because and a lot of these guys were you know, we're seeing either for the first time live or you know, for most, you know, especially like the higher level scouts or you know, front office guys who are coming into um, you know, who, who have like a national coverage who mm-hmm. um, you know, are are flying in to maybe see a guy for you know, probably for the first time at least this year. Um how I mean how 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 much do you balance trying to say, all right, well, this is just one look at a guy versus you know, just or how 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 difficult sometimes is to keep that into account when you know just that first impression of a player because a lot of times I, f- I feel like at least for me I, like I've made mistakes just overweighting a first look at a guy especially if it's if it ends up being really your only look at a player sometimes yeah th- this is exactly I don't know if you figure it out let me know because I, I feel like I'm going to have this the entire season with Chase DeLauder there I mean he's in Virginia <laughs> it's on the other side of the state like I could take three hours and drive over there to see him again um, but I don't know just if there's going to be the pitching matchup to do that. But yeah, it, it, it's tough. I don't know. And it's also, it's probably tougher for like for us, at least at the end of the day, you can be like, okay, our looks, we can kind of discount our own looks a little bit. We're going more off of the reporting and the information we're getting from scouts. But yeah, I, we've talked about it before, like that anchoring bias, your, your first look bias, it can be tough to shake. And I think the best the best way to go about it is just have an open mind and and know that on any given day, I mean, you might not be seeing someone's best day. You could be seeing the worst day they have of, of the season. And just keeping an open mind, I feel like it is the only way really you can avoid making big, big time mistakes in that regard. If you're going to just discount other pieces of information that you're getting, um, whether that's over video or looking at data or um, by talking to other people who have gotten other looks, different looks, more looks. Um, like, I don't know. I, I don't think that I have like a massive ego. So I, I think it's, it's more just like the subconscious bias that, that maybe can pop up. Like, I, I don't think I'm consciously like, Oh, my look matters more. Um, because one, I'm not scouting two, I just don't, I'm not wired that way, but I feel like that's the only way you can really avoid it. It's just have an open mind and kind of be humble about the process and just try and gather as much information as you can and make a, make a decision with kind of the collective information that you have at the end of the day, whatever the endpoint endpoint is of your process. Right. Like that's the only way that I know how to do it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think especially for these guys that are playing all season long, it's important for us or you know, like if you're a scouting director or, you know, or whoever is making the decision in the draft room, you're, you, you need to listen to your, you know, your area scouts, your cross checkers who are going in and, and seeing these guys regularly. Cause I'm sure, like, I'm sure there were, like you said, there were, there were scouting directors in there to see the louder. Um, but you know, this, this works the same way for the other way around. Like, you know, if, I mean, it's not Tommy White's draft year, right. But like, if you went in and saw him and you're like, Holy cow, like, you know, y- you can get way too high on a player. Sometimes if you're, if the first time you see him, he, he just looks incredible. Um, and it might end up being the only time you see him. So 
Um, yeah, I mean, I think whether it's, you know, for us when we're trying to line up our draft board or for a scouting director trying to line up their own organization's draft board, it's, yeah, it is relying on, you know, for, you know, at least for us to try to, you know, we also have the luxury of being able to talk to the, you know, not just our, you know, one area scout or, or cross checkers in our own organization, like a scouting director would, we have the ability to just call around a whole bunch of different <laughs> area scouts who are going to be seeing, uh, you know, a player over, over the season. So you're getting, um, you know, uh, a, a more diverse set of opinions and perspectives on a player, seeing them at, at different times, um, you know, throughout the, the year. So I, I think that's, that's important, but yeah, I mean, where, where I think I've, I've made mistakes over the years is um, just getting too excited sometimes on a player where like your only look at a player. Um, I, I, I think especially like the younger you go, right. Cause you know, for a college player, you're, you're going to have, you know, multiple years of, of history and, you know, you have three years typically of college baseball to, uh, plus all the summer stuff to, you know, really figure a guy out. Whereas with, um, you know, an international player or a high school player, um, you have less time. And, um, you know, like th this came up in particular with Cuban players, um, um, you know, seeing them at international tournaments. Like I remember seeing Jorge Onya at, a, um, you know, he played in an 18U tournament and he was like, I mean, he was the best player on the field uh, on a pretty uh, talented Cuban 18 and under team at the time. Um, but he, you know, he played a little bit in Serie Nacional before he left. I, I believe he left when he was still a, a teenager. So it wasn't, you know, there wasn't really much history on him. And, um, you know, I, I got really, really excited about him. I, I like the power. I like the, uh, the way the swing worked and got really excited about him and, and probably too excited about him at, uh, at a time he, you know, he, he has gone to the major leagues, but um, I think sometimes it's, it's like tough. Like you said, you have that anchoring bias where that first look can, it's, it's easy to overweight it, especially if it ends up being, you know, a circumstance where it ends up being maybe your only look at, at a player. So you can put, too much weight into that without sort of mentally regressing and saying, okay, well, maybe I, I just saw maybe the best week or so <laughs> of this guy's life. Yeah. And it, it's impossible for you to know whether or not that's the case at the time. So it can be really tricky to, to properly account for that. Do you ever see a player or, or have you ever seen a player and you just kind of fall in love with their swing and, and that kind of clouds you from maybe some of the other questions that you have? Because for me, uh, and I recently did a podcast with Kyle talking about the twin system. I think the prime candidate for me potentially whiffing on, and maybe you could say I've already done so, is Austin Martin. I was like the biggest Austin Martin fan during that draft class with Spencer Torkelson. I, I talked about multiple times how, yeah, I, I would take Austin Martin over Spencer Torkelson just because I think it's the all-around player, the hit tool, production in the SEC, developing power and I just remember being in love with the swing his contact ability his approach 
Um, and I think I have a bias towards like up the middle players as well. And that certainly played into it. Um, but, but have you ever fallen in love with just maybe like the aesthetics of a swing where that has kind of like prevented you from maybe, maybe fully seeing the, the whole picture. Cause it was really easy for me to fall in love with Austin Martin swing during his draft year. And at this point we have some, some real questions about him. I think not the, he's not a, still a good prospect. Like we still have him in the top 100, but there's quite a big gap from where we have Spencer Torkelson in our top 100 from where Austin Martin is. I think the, the aesthetics of a player swing, both good and bad can sometimes uh, lead you the wrong way. If, if you're, you know, if, if you're overweighting it um, I mean, it's easy to, you know, you just, you just watch BP and you see a hitter with a beautiful swing and it stands out right away. And I do, you know, I, I love having a, you know, a short, quick, compact, uh, you know, efficient swing that stays in the, the hitting zone a long time because it should be conducive to being able to perform well in games and, and make a lot of contact. But like you said, there's more to hitting than just having a, a pretty swing <laughs> or or even not necessarily just a pretty swing, just a good swing, right? Like if you, if you, you know, if you have poor vision, if you have poor pitch recognition, if you're up there chasing a lot of pitches, I mean, that's going to eat away at your productivity. And sometimes again, the other way too, or a guy, you look at a guy and you're like, man, I don't know about <laughs> this swing. Like, like, like Joey Weimer, for example, would be a, a good example. Like you see him in college and I mean, it's not like his performance in college is something either that where you would look at and say, Oh, but he is really performing. It, it wasn't that way either. It's really more the, the physicality and, and the raw tools with him. But yeah, I mean, sometimes you see a guy's swing and you're like, uh, I don't know. I, you know, people would say that about Bo Bichette um, in, in high school, you know, certainly as a, an underclassman, I in think high school, a good example in this year's class is Paxton Kling, a uh, Pennsylvania kid mm. who, who has some moving parts in the swing and it's kind of funky and people have thrown out hundred. I mean, Hunter Pence is always the guy I feel like that gets thrown out when, when there's some moving parts in the swing, but if, he's if another you like guy. the guy, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. He's another guy if who, you, if you don't like him, who, who is it? It's just some, some <laughs> exactly. nobody who didn't make exactly. it. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, he, he's one that just always produced good tools, but the swing is just aesthetically not super pleasing. I mean, for me a little bit, not, not to this level, I had it with Drew Jones. His swing just looked, it looked mm. odd to me for whatever reason. And I don't know that I've found a good way to like explain it, what it, what it is that looks odd. Maybe it's just the way he uses the lower half and the way his hands work like he's like disconnected kind of, with his timing sometimes yeah i think that's what it is for me but that's what i've kind of tried to have to get over in this year's class and it's not very hard with drew given his like his production and bat to ball he has power. three home runs already this year yeah i've seen a lot a lot of highlights of him just going off so curious what the end of season totals are going to look like for him but yeah just just a couple examples i wanted to throw out didn't mean to cut you off no that's just yeah i mean it's it's, I mean, I, I think having a good swing is important. There's, I mean, you certainly see guys with bigger, longer swings that can work at the, you know, obviously at the high school level and then at the college level too. And, and the higher you go up again, we got guys throwing, <laughs> you know, 97 to a hundred miles an hour in the big leagues pretty regularly. It's, you got, you have to have a, you know, with some pretty filthy breaking pitches, you have to have a swing that's, you know, conducive to 
to handling velocity and, and is adjustable to handle different types of pitches in, in different parts of the strike zone. So um, it is important, but sometimes the, yeah, the, the, there's, there's an aesthetically pleasing swing, but then there's also just a, a, a functional and an efficient swing. And, and there's just more to it than, than just the, the swing itself that goes into hitting, but um, who, you know, who has the most aesthetically pleasing swing that you've seen and you can't say Ken Griffey jr. Who? most step you know what i'll go with i'll go with a right-handed hitter i'll go with josh yeah i'll go with josh donaldson donaldson is pretty awesome i love i love watching josh donaldson uh he'd be my right-handed pick just Mm -hmm. the the leg kick the rhythm the flow the Mm -hmm. way the barrel turns into the hitting zone it's it's compact It, it just gets on plane with the with the pitch so early just mm-hmm. gives them this really wide margin for air just to, and then there's, you know, so much power mm-hmm. behind it too. So it's powered all fields. And, and in the same way, I would say from the left side, I would go with Juan Soto. I love watching him. Yeah. Those open side one. clips of him. Where this his is also has a benefit because it's like unique enough to where you could identify it. If you just saw like a silhouette, yeah like the stance is unique <laughs> enough so it's like identifiable and also just pleasing to watch like inherently i guess yeah well you just watch him from the open side and he's another guy where the barrel just gets so deep into the hitting zone so early where it looks like he's gonna hit the catcher's mitt with his barrel and then it just stays on plane for so long that's why you see all those mm-hmm. opposite field you know left field left center bombs from him and obviously he has enormous power too which mm. <laughs> plays into it but just such a such a beautiful beautiful swing and then his approach is is ridiculous too yeah mine are who'd be, um yeah, who'd be yours my left the first left-handed one that i thought of when i put the king griffey jr stipulation in was carlos gonzalez oh this was always really one. nice to me i like that uh it just seems super smooth and, and easy and loose um, my other one, and I, I don't, I still don't know if this is like a hot take or if people are in agreement with me on this one, but I think Bryce Harper's is a ton of fun to watch. It's definitely yeah. not, it's like controlled violence. It, it's a very violent swing, but it is very aesthetically pleasing to me. Like he, he's got a ton going on, like it's very aggressive, but when he connects on a home run to the pull side, I think it's one of the, the more fun things to watch in baseball. My right-handed swing, and, and maybe this is a, a little biased, but I, I think Ronald Acuna Jr.'s swing is pretty gorgeous from the right side. Um, I have no real reason why, but he's one of the only right-handed batters that I like initially think of. It's typically why is it with lefties? It, it always seems like this answer is a left-handed hitter. Yeah, like you got Robinson Cano would be another mm-hmm. one too, right? Like yeah, his is so great. many. Beautiful I mean, King Griffey's is like swings. the peak that everyone cites all the time. Those are all guys too, where I, I think you have young hitters who try to emulate their swings too. Like you, like I just, I don't know. I, I feel like Bellinger in, was pretty popular too for a little bit. I don't know if that has faded, fallen off a little. Yeah, I think he did. But people love <laughs> Corey Seager. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, I, like I see kids in Venezuela with that same. I mean, obviously, like his little brothers, but like you know, it's. Just just other kids in Venezuela, or even just like the Georgia area, I think maybe who try to swing like Ronald Acuna with that same hand same setup. Little toe. I, yeah. Yeah. I don't know if I'd even necessarily teach that. I mean, Ronald <laughs> Acuna has so much 
it doesn't seem it doesn't it seem a good idea to to mimic anyone's swing really like i feel like you should swing how is naturally best for you like initially and then make the tweaks based on your skill set but that's well, i think you can look of... at guys who have i mean you can look at you can certainly study the hitters who have great swings especially you know if it's a hitter who has a similar a similar build a similar body type to you and say all right well what is like you know miguel cabrera would be a right-handed example like what is he doing in his swing that's obviously so effective for him and try to yeah i feel like understanding like what makes their swing effective could be different than like mimicking the aesthetics of the swing right like you could mimic a batting stance and like hand placement but not understand like when they're getting to launch position or how their hands work through the zone or stuff like that that's kind of what i'm thinking of the uh who would be your so my, I think my favorite prospect swing, because as you were saying that, I was thinking about it. Yeah, I wanted to do pro- either prospect or like because, amateur players too. Because as you said, as you said, Carlos Gonzalez, it made me think of it as, as George Valera. Now everybody comps his swing, with, you know, with Indians outfielder, because everybody comps it to Robinson Cano as soon as you see it. I think he, I remember talking to him because I saw him when he was probably like 15 or maybe 16 in the, Dominican Republic at the time before he had signed with the um do I say do they sign do I say now that he signed with the Indians or that he signed with the Guardians I had this I think you say he signed with the Indians I I had this pop up the other day I think I was I I was actually when I was writing up um Javier Santos Tejada who goes to the same school that Daniel Espino went to Georgia Premier Academy the Indians signed him and I think it it is accurate to say that the Indians signed him because they were the Indians at the time and I ran this by Matt, uh, who's our like style guru at BA. And I think that's where he landed on it as well. Like, I don't know that we can just erase their team history just because they changed but it's, it now. It's like, not like it's like not like the, the Guardians signed him. The Indians yeah, signed him. They just changed their name. They changed their name, but it's not like the Expos. Cleveland moving. signed him. You could do that. Yeah, I guess that would be the <laughs> workaround. But like the Expos, you you would say a, a player was drafted by the Expos. You wouldn't say he was drafted by the nationals, they moved to a new, I mean, it's, it's, it's the same organization and same franchise history. Right. But if I think if they're just changing the name, I would still say he was, he signed, he signed with the guardians. I think I might he didn't, disagree though. with he Matt didn't, on though. this. You would look at, if you look back at pictures, there's Indians logos everywhere. He didn't sign with the guardians Signed with the Indians. Right. <laughs> this will be our new ops debate. <laughs> That's, I don't know. I don't know where I stand on this one. We'll have to tag Matt in for an answer on this. I think he can be the deciding factor for but the I, judge. You know, he's going to say, yeah, but I, I think Valera would be my favorite prospect okay. swing. It, it is a, cause I remember talking to him as an amateur. Cause I, I, you know, I saw him the first thing I thought, Oh, you stole Robinson Cano's swing. It looks, <laughs> it looks exactly like that. Uh-huh. Every time we post a video, that's what everybody immediately says about it yeah um and it's all you know he's or he you know he would live in uh and trained out of san pedro de Macaris too it's uh i mean it, it's just a beautiful swing but I, if i remember right i think he told me he tried to mimic carlos gonzalez's swing mm-hmm. um when he was a kid i mean not that long ago i think he's like 21 now mm-hmm. but um yeah it's just that's just such a beautiful 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 left-handed swing who would be um Who'd be your pick for yeah, either was, minor league or, or amateur now? 
the amateur one would be easier for me because it's probably just termars right now i mean it's oh yeah that's it's, it's hard not to love his because i feel like he has everything going on it's, it's smooth it's loose it's compact um it's like it, it feels like no matter where he's swinging in the zone the swing is like on plane on time to the opposite field to the pull side for power it just seems so like such a versatile swing while being so easy and powerful at the same time it just seems like just such a i don't know you are much better at describing these swings to me so i need to get better at like vocalizing why i like it um it's just but, so whippy through like in so much yeah. bat speed too it's just it's, everything it's ex- like the the bat speed i feel like is almost underrated with tomorrow because it's insane bat speed yeah like i feel like his bat speed austin hendrick's bat speed austin beck's bat speed like that's those three are probably the best bat speed guys that i've seen in person on the amateur side um yeah to tomorrow on the amateur side and then i mean on the my league side i'll just stick with austin martin probably his is i know um at the draft time like he was getting comparisons to anthony rendon for his swing and i think that's a pretty good comparison for how the swing works uh i just loved how his hands worked in college i thought that he kept his like the way his head movement and his hand movement worked pre-pitch i really admired um i just thought it was so consistent and, and maybe that will help him just make helps him make the amount of contact that he does make um but I know it got a little bit disconnected in pro ball and some scouts are saying that it changed a little. So I will add the caveat of Vanderbilt era, Austin Martin swing. Uh, it could be back to that, that same swing at this point, but um, I know it changed a little bit. So I'll go with Austin Martin. Yeah. I might go with torque for my, my right-handed swing. So Ooh, his is good. Yeah. Him or, you know, Julio Rodriguez, I might put in there. J-Rod too. is never it, a wrong answer. It's tough. Podcast. Cause I, I, I loved his swing when he was an amateur player in the Dominican Republic, but maybe it's tough too, because there's so many other things to <laughs> love about Julio Rodriguez from the power to the arm and all the other mm-hmm. tools and uh, the personality. Maybe it's clouding my, my judgment on. <laughs> yeah. Just all the, the biases just the are, swing. Here. Are, are there any, Oh, I, you know, one that I will actually throw out there is Zach Veen's swing. I remember yeah, really I liking his, his, I loved his swing. I think he was one of those guys that got, Yelich and Bellinger comps for his swing and honestly like the body and frame and size his was a very loose easy like naturally leveraged swing like with a a pretty good leg kick that was always kind of synced up when I saw him really loved his swing just like the aesthetics of that swing I remember liking it a lot I think even at the time of the draft I'd said it's like one of my favorite swings at the time so I had to definitely I'll probably go to V now on the prospect side are there any guys, whether it's prospects, amateurs, or major league guys now who you actively dislike their swing, but they're really good hitters still? <laughs> You're like, dang, um, I wish this didn't work, but it does. Or like, man, this guy's not fun to watch hit, or I would never teach anyone to hit like this. That's a good question. I may have to think about that one. I always hate when people have really awkward hand placements for no I mean, I'm sure there's a reason, but when I see them, I'm like, why would you ever start your hands there? So that annoys me sometimes. I'm trying to think of someone who, I guess like Kevin Euclid's was really weird. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like that was the (laughs) weirdest thing ever for a number of reasons, like how high it was, like the hand up the barrel, 
just like, how do you get to that? I'm sure there've been a million stories written about it. I should know, but like, how do you actually get to that point? Um, like current guys, I don't know that there's an obvious one, but it's fun to talk about productive hitters with bad swings, just as much as aesthetically pleasing swings. I feel like maybe even more so. Yeah. I'm trying to think of somebody uh, like a, a minor league hitter. I'm trying to think of a prospect where, yeah, I don't have one. I don't have a good one that, that yeah. jumps to mind right away. Well, anyways, that was a fun discussion about swings. So if you guys have any any swings you really like or any swings you, you really don't like but still work, throw them at us. Um, it's fun to talk through. I'm sure everyone has uh, very strong feelings for their favorite swings. So let us know um, on Twitter at Ben Badler for Ben, at Carlos A. Colazzo for me, at Future Pro Pod. Um, and do you want to get into some questions, Ben? Yeah, yeah, let's jump into them. Yeah, we've got a few today. Thank you for sending those. Again, you can send them to us on all those um, Twitter handles that I just mentioned or on Ben's Instagram. I know Ben always puts out a little mailbag option on his Instagram story. So if you don't follow Ben there, you're missing out on a lot of good uh, baseball content for some players who will certainly be bigger factors in the draft in the future. He's he's on top of all these underclass kids at the moment, so it's good stuff. Um but getting into one, Kenny on Twitter asks, um, question for the pod, what's the difference, if there is one, between command and control for pitchers? I always thought it was the same and then heard elsewhere it isn't the same. This is a fantastic question, Kenny, and we appreciate it. Um, this is a question that uh, I feel like it's not a question that comes up, but it is something that does come up. I feel like people maybe misuse these terms probably more than, more than any other scouting term. Um, I would guess. Um, and there is a pretty key difference. Ben, do you want to break down the difference between control and command as we use them here? Yeah, I would just say generally control is the ability to throw strikes and command is the ability to hit the spot that you are aiming for. Yeah. So I mean, it, it, just as a, a, a basic overview of it. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I feel like most people will just use command when they normally mean control, especially if you are looking at walk rates or kind of scouting box scores where you're really not going to get a feel for command based on that, but you can get a feel for control. Just if a, if a pitcher is consistently walking very few batters, it's pretty safe to say he has good control or solid control. Command, um, he might not have command. Like I think a good example of this is Landon Sims start. He struck out 13 batters, didn't walk any. You could say that, oh, he has great command. I watched his start and looked at everything, and I thought his command was more scattered in that outing. But because he was around the strike zone enough, and because his stuff drew whiffs outside of the zone, he never really got into an issue where he was walking hitters. Um, whereas Hunter Barco, I thought his command, just at least comparing these first two starts between them, was a little bit better than Landon Sims. Um, cause he was spotting, he was hitting his spots in the zone more consistently with the fastball. Um, I felt that his breaking ball command in terms of where he was attempting to land the ball, at least based on the catcher setups was more consistent. Um, so yeah, you, you need to, you need to know where a pitcher is trying to throw a pitch to have an idea, uh, for command and with control, it's basically just like, can he fill up the zone? And typically if you have a pitcher who has really good command, he has good control the as well but i think they're 
there is an interesting like outlier case where you can have a pitcher that has really good command, but maybe doesn't have good control. And I think of these pitchers who just don't have great stuff and have to maybe nibble around the strike zone. So they know where they're throwing, but they have maybe a higher walk rate than you'd expect given that command because their stuff isn't overpowering enough in the zone. In that instance, Ben, would you say they don't have good control or would you say that they do, they just can't afford to be in the zone as much as maybe other pitchers? I know that's the one JJ always brings up with me when we talk about command versus control in the very rare instance where maybe you have a, a command guy who's not a control guy. For, for a pitcher who commands his, like you would say he Let's commands say. his fastball well, but mm-hmm. but, what, but like have... his walk rate is higher than like a below average walk rate. Um, I, I guess I, that, that seems more like an approach. Yeah, for issue sure. Than, yeah, than I think you can make the case that like... with control. It's just more the style where, yeah. Hey, I throw, you know, 87 miles an hour. And if I come into the zone, I, I just need to be really precise with my location. So I'm trying to, you know, like you said, nipple around the edges of the zone, or I have a, you know, a, a slider that works as a, a mm-hmm. chase pitch, but isn't, you know, if I, if I put it in the zone, hitters might, might square it up. So that, that, that seems to me more like an approach thing than, mm-hmm. than an issue of command versus control. I, th- I think more common is you, you have a pitcher who has good, who, who who could have good control or like you said, you know, just throws enough strikes, but doesn't have great fastball command. command so maybe yeah. a lot of those strikes are in very hittable parts of the strike zone. And that's causing, causing his outfielders to be getting a lot of exercise. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. So hopefully that is helpful. Hopefully I didn't confuse you enough with my reverse command control. I mean, I do um, think they, they generally, you know, correlate pretty highly. Though. Yeah. Like I, I think there's more, it, like for the most part, you know, if, if you have good control, you're, you're probably going to have good command and, and vice versa. Um, yeah. I would say if you're, I, if you're talking about just walk rates, um, you probably just want to be using control because that's probably what you're talking about. Generally command is like more, a little bit more nuanced, like hitting your spots within the zone rather than throwing the ball over the plate if that makes sense. Um, let us see here. Marcus Zapia on Instagram asks, would a team ever avoid a position in the draft because of players currently in the system? Well, typically I would have just said, no, uh, they wouldn't do that. But I do think that teams think differently about catching specifically. And that is basically just because of the conversations about the Patrick Bailey selection for the giants after they had taken Joey Bart and how, the industry talked about that pick because they already had Joy Bart. So it definitely seemed like at least for catchers, there's a, a bit of an exception, but I think generally most teams are just trying to find the best player available because these guys are going to move positions. The timeline is not consistent for all of them. A lot of them are going to fail and you're probably going to have a better hit rate. If you just, every time you pick, take the best player on the board, regardless of position and figure out your positional log jams later, if that's a problem, because if that is a problem for you at the major league level, then your problem is you have a lot of good players and you don't have anywhere to play them. Um, whereas in the NFL or the NBA, you don't have that, that timeline of development um, where you have several years in the NFL, you're drafting these guys and the next season, 
they're playing roles on your team. So it makes more sense to draft for need. You're not going to draft a quarterback if you have Aaron Rodgers on your team. Um, that's not really the case in baseball. The, the development gap between draft and between when you debut or when you kind of establish yourself as a major league player is three to seven, eight years. So there's a long time for things to change, for the makeup of your organizational strengths and weaknesses to change. So I would say on almost all occasions, um, you would not worry about the position. Any thoughts on that, Ben? Didn't they draft Aaron Rodgers when they had Brett Favre, though? Uh, well, and you could also That's, say they did it again, the too. To my had, um, knowledge, so. They also drafted Jordan Love, who, I mean, that I pick pissed that a lot is. of people off. Yeah, you don't know who he is because Aaron Rodgers is still the quarterback of the Green Bay Packers, and in the first <laughs> round, the Green Bay Packers selected a quarterback. So when, when they do that in the NFL, people ridicule them. In baseball, it's much more normal. Although Yankees fans have really been, like, mad about all the shortstops the Yankees have, the shortstop prospects. Like... I don't remember what it was specifically, but people were like, oh, not another shortstop for something. I think it was when I posted them signing like a 16-year-old oh, shortstop from that's Curacao. Exactly. Every time, <laughs> if, it, if it gets enough reach, you'll it's bound to have somebody say, why are we signing another shortstop? Yeah, I think but, that's when you hit the NFL fan who just doesn't understand the not drafting for need. So maybe this question is kind of tied into that, but yeah. I, well, no, say- I, I mean, I, I think generally what you're saying is, is true. So, I mean... Like certainly for a high school player, that would never come into play because best case scenario is all right. We'll say you draft the, say you draft a high school catcher, right? And he ends. We chose high school catcher. What's the well for for this example because because we're talking about college catchers, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. But and and because you know with catcher, it's you know generally you know, maybe you're, you know, maybe your bat is so good where you end up moving to another position and it works out, but there's less, you know, flexibility to, um, you know, or, or a lot more of a value ding if you end up going to first base, obviously from, from catching. Um, but, but, you know, let's say, let's say you draft a high school player and, and you have somebody already entrenched at that same position in the big leagues and who's under, you know, team control for the next, five years all right well let's say you know he actually gets to the you know the high school player you draft actually gets the big leagues best case scenario by the time he's what 20 21 years old so then you have a problem well that problem is you probably have one of the elite (laughs) prospects in baseball right now who's getting to the big leagues by the time he's 2021 so that's it's really not a factor with high school players but like you said maybe sometimes with college players where you know you do have two guys you know you're you're choosing you know again like maybe in the middle or the back of the first round and you know you have two guys with basically the same grades on them there's not a strong difference of opinion in your room on on those guys well yeah maybe it you would you would lean one way Uh, but for the most part I think especially at the top of the draft you're you're just trying to take the best player on the board, uh, certainly for, for high school players. Um, but as you get deeper into the draft, you probably have some more organizational needs where you might say, you know what, our farm system is pretty light on pitching. So yeah. we're going to draft all pitchers if we're the angels, right? Like <laughs> that's yeah, that, obviously that an extreme example, happens. but yeah, once you get into the deep parts of a draft, 
there is a lot of, of occasions where you need catchers for certain levels. So you have an organizational need to fill. So you're looking for the best catcher on your board. So that, that certainly happens once you get into like late day two and day three, when you're filling org needs and maybe you're those guys, I mean, all, obviously all the guys you're taking, you want them to develop as prospects, but at some occasions you really just need someone to be able to catch at a certain level. And if you don't have a catcher on your team, you, well, you kind of have to draft one. So, but thank you for that question. Uh, Marcus, uh, we have another question from geo on Instagram who asks, can a player living in the United States get signed as an international signing? Yes. Yes. But they have to, you have to actually, I mean, you can't just, stay in the united states right so you you can move to uh, a country outside of you know you can't just move to canada because they're still subject to the draft right uh but if you you know canada, if you not move, quite international enough right <laughs> um but you could you know if if you have family for example in the dominican republic uh or or venezuela you can move uh, to that country, you have to, you have to MLB's rule is that you still have to, you, you'll have to live there for a year. And I, I believe the situation is like, there has to be some reason you're moving there that isn't to just avoid the draft, but I don't know that they really care about that anymore. Um, or how much they ever really cared about that in the first place. I mean, before, Obviously, you you know you know you have a draft in the states, and then internationally, you used to have this uncapped system. Now the bonuses were not that large at the time, and then the pool system went into place where you could, as a team, spend beyond your bonus pool and and just pay a large tax penalty and and go into two years of signing restrictions. But now that the international players have a hard cap on on their um or the other or the teams i should say have a hard cap on their international bonus pools i don't think mlb really cares one way or the other whether you're going into a, a hard capped international system or what effectively is a hard capped draft system in the united states so um you know we, we've seen players do this i mean we talked about george valera uh, he did that he was living in in New York, in New York City, uh, moved down to the Dominican Republic, started training there, uh, got signed by either the Indians or Guardians, depending on where you stand on this issue. Um, Alex Reyes was an example. Uh, another player signed with the, was living in New Jersey, family signed with the, uh, had family in the Dominican Republic, moved down there, uh, signed as an international free agent with the Cardinals. Um, Jose Salas was, was another example too. I mean, he you know, grew up in, uh, I believe he was at school in, in Orlando or, or the Orlando area, uh, but just was in Venezuela uh, temporarily and, and signed with the Marlins as an international free agent. So, um, so yeah, so there's definitely examples of players who have made that move from the States to another country temporarily to, uh, to sign as, a, as an international free agent. Well, thank you for that question, Gio. Uh, our last question is from Joe on Twitter. Yes, who's who's the under the radar guy, top two hundred plus type in college baseball you're watching? 
Um, this is an interesting one. We're actually kind of in the process of expanding our list to 200. Um, so potentially this player, or at least the one that I have in mind now, will be on it. Maybe he'll be just outside of it. I think he probably will end up being outside of it. But um, a guy that I like, and I've said I'm a sucker for change-ups in the past, is uh, two-lane left-hander Dylan Carmouche. And I could be butchering his last name pronunciation, but he's really interesting to me. Pitched well in his, his first start this year. Four to lane, went six innings, seven Ks, two walks. Um, he doesn't have big stuff. It's like an 88, 91 mile per hour fastball, but he's six foot five, deceptive delivery, high slot, and has a really good changeup, really good feel for a changeup that he throws with pretty good arm speed. I feel like he sells it well. Um, and, and just batters seem to have a tough time hitting against him, whether that's because of the deception or the slot or the movement or the arm speed or the combination of all those things. Um, I don't know about the breaking ball, like how good that is. That could be what maybe holds him back from being in a top 200 range that and, and the velocity, but he's certainly a guy who I'm intrigued with that um, figures to land a little bit further down the board um, for me. So I'll just throw that one out. Um, and Ben, if you don't have anyone, um, I think that about wraps it up for our questions. Um, thank you guys for, for sending them. They're always fun. Always a fun way to kind of interact with you all in the podcast. And hopefully you enjoy them as well. Hopefully you never uh, hear your question answered and you're like, well, that was lame. Not a good answer, but um, keep sending them in. We'll keep asking for them. Uh, and I think that kind of wraps it up for us today. Uh, ben, is there anything that people need to keep an eye on or anything you want to point to on the site or anything else that we haven't touched on that you want to mention before we get out of here? Yeah, we got our position rankings going up on baseballamerica.com right now. So uh, running through position by position uh, with some, um, I guess, best tools and uh, sleepers and um, for each position about our 2023 high school top 100 up right now. So trying to keep an eye on multiple draft years at, at once and, and we'll have some deeper years and updated draft boards coming up for not just the 2022 draft. Like you said, we're, we're expanding that list uh, coming up uh, with some new information coming in on, on these guys, but trying to keep tabs on multiple mm -hmm. years of, of draft classes at, at once. Yeah, and I'll just point to uh, the, the college work that Teddy and Joe are doing. If you're interested in just the competitive side of college baseball, they're on top of that every week. The top 25 uh, gets updated and dropped every Monday, in addition to all the other uh, content they're doing on the college side. And then for me, the biggest thing is just the draft rankings. They're going to be updated regularly throughout the season and expanded as we move towards the BA 500. Um, and then the one piece that hopefully will be kind of an area for you guys to keep tabs on who's kind of moving up boards, who's trending down boards is just uh, the draft stock watch piece that I try to do every week. This week we had two. Um, so I'm just trying to make sure everyone is, is kind of keeping tabs on all, all the player movement, the significant player movement, the heavy hitters in the draft, where they're going, sleepers and pop-ups because everyone loves pop-ups. Um, we have one in this week's stock watch and there are going to be more as we move throughout the season. So keep an eye on that piece just everything uh, on the site that Ben mentioned. Um, and I think that's it. Thank you guys for listening. Thank you for subscribing to the show. Thank you for rating it. If you have, if you have not, um, you can on iTunes, if you want to, that helps us out. You can rate the show on Spotify. Uh, I believe on mobile. I don't know if you can do that on the desktop version, but 
Um, if you, if you want to do that and you have not, thank you. We really appreciate it. And for Ben, I'm Carlos. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll see you next time. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.